In the context of what's been happening in global economics over the past 12 months, an important and really interesting book was published last year called Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too. Now, I've always heard about how different the Nordic economies are. Some saying they verge on socialism, others saying they've found the secret to happiness and equality. Well, to find out, I tracked down the author, George Lakey, in Pennsylvania for this week's Spotlight. And I started by asking him to tell us what sets the Scandinavian economies apart. Well, the ones that I've studied were four of them, actually. Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Iceland. And I chose those four because they all have a common ancestry culturally. That is, they all descended from the ancient Vikings. And so I call my book Viking Economics. But of course, they're quite different now from the way that things were a thousand years ago. And one of the things that distinguishes them is that they play musical chairs among themselves and among the top uh, tier of the ratings, the international ratings that are done in which various countries are assessed, you know, by things like equality and individual freedom and worker productivity and uh, entrepreneurs, uh, the number of startups. For example, Norway has more startups than the United States, that kind of thing. And I was very interested in how is it that these countries tend to be outperforming most other uh, countries in the world, and what is it that they had to do to turn themselves around so that they could so consistently outperform other economies? What are the ways in which they outperform? Is it simply on what you might call social measures, or is it also on what people like Milton Friedman would regard as sort of important competitive economic ones? The fact that they are so friendly to startups is really very remarkable. And as an American, as a U.S. person, I was actually startled to find out that they generate more entrepreneurs per capita than we do, uh, more startups. And uh, then it took me a little while to understand that it's actually their economic model that supports risk-taking on the part of people. The American entrepreneurs and startups seem to end up richer than the Scandinavian ones. Well, a lot of them just fold, actually. A lot of, a lot of uh, the U.S. startups are uh, people who've been thrown out of work, have, uh, can see no alternative, and put, you know, try to put two and two together to try to eke out a living and, and as soon as they can get a job. Um, and then, of course, there are the storied uh, ones who make tremendous lot of money who are in Silicon Valley in their garage or something and, and uh, figure out some software that really makes a difference. Mass media very often highlight the successful ones, but in fact, the rate of success is very high in, in the Nordic countries. And one reason why their economic model actually supports people taking the risks of being entrepreneurs is because the risks aren't as great. In the U.S., for example, one of the things that might stop a 45-year-old from quitting their job and throwing themselves into a startup is, well, my children are you know, coming on to college age, and I need to be sure I have a job to be able to send them to college. Well, that's not an issue among Nordic countries because university is free, all higher education is free, medical schools free, law schools free, ballet schools free, because their attitude is to invest hugely in their own population's development, and uh, they regard brain power, for example, is an economic resource, and so they think that should be fully developed and that it should, people shouldn't hold back 
on uh, brain power development on the grounds that there's a price tag attached. That's just one example. Another thing that might hold people back from being entrepreneurs in this country, I know, in fact, I know people who've been held back on this, is that their, their health care insurance is provided by the employer. And so if they quit their job, they lose their health care insurance, and that, of course, could, could be a result in a catastrophe. And on the other hand, in the Nordic countries, that's not an issue because health care is a right, and it's provided through the government, through the single payer, and then that provides uh, that kind of cushion. Also, uh, you might want want to try out some brilliant idea that you think is going to make an amazing difference and yet be held back because if you bet the farm and then the whole thing goes down the drain, how will you survive in old age? That would be a huge issue in the United States because we have poverty among our elders. But since the Nordic economic model doesn't believe in poverty, they've taken care of that by having universal pensions and therefore elders are taken care of with dignity in their old age. So these are some of the ways that in the U.S. we actually stifle uh, in the name of competition, in the name of merit, you know, and allowing quality to flourish. We actually stifle that by making uh, so many people disadvantaged in as they consider the breaking free and following the creative impulse. And then that actually hurts our economy as a whole. And, and that's what I found over and over, that one reason why the Nordic countries outperform the United States is because um, their economies actually provide uh, an investment in their people, and it's their people that make economic productivity really zingy. That is so interesting. Would you regard this, uh, the Scandinavian or Nordic economies as sort of hybrids of socialism and capitalism, or, or would you, having looked at them and studied them, say that they are pure capitalism? Oh, they're definitely not pure capitalism. The, the pure capitalist model is more represented by the UK and the US, um, but they are definitely a hybrid. Uh, they they were led into their uh, remarkable 20th century um, renaissance by uh, socialists who believed, who dissented from state socialism, this sort of Soviet kind of thing, by believing that the market can be a very, very usable, useful and flexible instrument and they're the market you know for trading and, and getting things done because of, of its flexibility it was to be retained on the other hand the uh, the folks who built who invented the nordic um, model also understood that markets left to themselves um, tend to run awry and the economies go wrecking uh, and so it's necessary to guide the market to very carefully regulate it to make sure that the market is actually serving the whole society rather than uh, the society going uh, over the cliff when the economy uh, wrecks. And actually, the Nordic countries, I have a couple of chapters in my book telling about times when Sweden and Norway specifically got very tempted by the neoliberal model. They got very tempted by sort of free free market capitalism and took a lot of regulations off their financial sectors and other sectors as well. And then um, they did indeed run toward the cliff. <laughs> their bankers went wild and speculated and the, there was a bubble and then the bubble burst. This was the late 80s, early 90s. And the governments of Norway and Sweden had to step in and um, seize the major banks that were the culprits and uh, you know nationalize them and 
put them back into order and put the regulations back on and so on. So they, they had their fling after having had a very successful uh, economic time. They had their fling with neoliberalism and found, indeed, that it simply doesn't work as well as the model they already had. That's actually quite interesting because you one of the things you point out is that the Nordic countries tend to learn from each other. However, it does seem like Iceland did not learn from Sweden's mistakes. I had such a good time with one of the leading economists of Iceland. Yes, he admitted that. He said, of course, Iceland regards this. You know, they're, they're kindred, actually. They're, they're sort of Viking cousins with the Norwegians. And they admitted uh, that they didn't learn a thing from the Norwegian disaster. And so they created an even bigger disaster. I have a whole chapter on, on that terrible mistake that Iceland made. Do you think that the, the things that set this group of countries apart is, is cultural and therefore natural, goes but right back, embedded in their nature? Or is it something they decided on and was hard won? Oh, decided on was hard won, yes, because it was in their nature. If it was in their nature, they would have had a hundred years ago, but a hundred years ago they had a, they were a mess. A hundred years ago, they had such endemic poverty and lack of opportunity that they hemorrhaged their people. Swedes and Norwegians were coming to the U.S. and Canada, and I believe Australia and New Zealand. They were, they were Anything they could do to get out. <laughs> so their culture wasn't doing them any good. The, the homogeneity of their culture was not doing them any good. They were, they were terrible places in, economically. And uh, so what needed to happen was that the people who remained there uh, the majority of them developed a vision of an alternative. That was really number one. They, as long as they stayed with the capitalist model, they realized it would it would never really improve. And so they envisioned an alternative, which economists call the Nordic model, and then they f- uh, fought for it. And that meant open struggle. That meant mass movements um, making their countries ungovernable. And it didn't mean that the economic elite, which was actually running those countries, um, felt uh, threatened. They were indeed threatened. And When was this going on? This is the 20s and 30s. Yeah, 20s and 30s was that when it really accelerated. It was a mass movement of people rather than great leaders who decided on it. Very much so. Of course, they did have fine leaders, but it, it, leaders can't really do anything without a mass basis. Um, yeah, unless the leaders have enormous lots of money, but the money power was on was held by the economic elite. So what the people had on their side was people power, and so they used that through nonviolent struggle. So they, the Swedes and Norwegians, actually pulled off a nonviolent revolution against their economic elite, and uh, and shouldered them aside. Uh, just you know, ended their historic dominance of the economy and the direction of their societies. And the people took charge instead and created democracy. And once they had democracy, then they could invent the Nordic model because then they were free to be creative rather than just uh, follow the old, you know, the old, <laughs> the old economic religion of capitalism. The thing that uh, obviously is said most often about those countries is that their taxes are so high in order to fund all of this free uh, services, pensions, and so on. Um, and today, it seems like uh, having high tax rates is becoming an, you know, uh, more and more of a disadvantage because uh, taxation, particularly corporate taxation, has become the basis of an international competition. So is that an issue for them? 
nobody enjoys paying taxes. <laughs> and so there, there's always an issue about how much is too much. So some of the interviews that I have in my book that are, I think, most interesting are interviews with top earners, you know, entrepreneurs who own large corporations. And uh, the interviews are along the lines of, so how do you feel about paying these enormous taxes? Because in some of those countries, I mean, the tax, rate, tax rates differ among these different countries, but they are very high. And in Norway, there's also a wealth tax on top of income tax. So almost a 1% a year of wealth, wealth tax. And uh, the response in Norway of the entrepreneurs was, hey, look, we get a tremendous lot for what we pay. In other words, we get what we pay for. We pay a lot. But on the other hand, we get a quality society. We get a quality workforce that's really reliable. We get a highly intelligent, knowledgeable workforce because of all this, uh, uh, all these taxes going to um, education. We get a very healthy workforce because, and it's really great to have a workforce that's very healthy and so on and so on. So they see it as a tremendous advantage to be able to um, have all those goodies, and they understand that you, to get goodies, you have to lay the money out. So they're very realistic about it, really. But did you find much tax avoidance or tax evasion? No, it's not allowed. Very transparent. Well, it's not allowed, in, it's not allowed anywhere, really, but if one does it. Well, if you're wondering what your neighbor is maybe getting away with, you can just go online and read their tax, tax return. You can read everyone else's tax return. No, well, they're very aware of the danger of corruption, of course, and, and, and so and they're the least corrupt, corrupt countries in the world. And one way they do that is everybody's tax return, the prime minister, everybody's tax return is on, on, the, on the web, so you can just access it. You know, so if your neighbor works for the finance ministry and shows up one day with a, a new Porsche, <laughs> you wonder, huh, where did that come from? Just go online and find out uh, whether that Porsche is something that should be reported to somebody. Goodness, I didn't know that. Squeaky clean really works in terms of productivity also, right? What you find from an economic point of view is a remarkable degree of stability and uh, ability to predict into the future. So people making investments, which which is what entrepreneurs need to do, can make investments with a high degree of thoughtfulness. And uh, so it's not cowboy, wild west, uh, boom and bust. It's a much more rational kind of uh, way of, of proceeding in an economy and therefore much more productive. It may mean that you don't get extraordinary returns this year, but some people actually have a longer view than this year. And uh, that's, of course, one of the problems in the United States is this quarterly you know, mania about the quarterly returns. And then that discourages a longer-term investment and means decline over time. I actually thought that the the bloke who owns IKEA was a a big tax avoider, but possibly I'm wrong. Yes, you're you're wrong. The largest uh, billionaire in um, Norway actually moved to Cyprus, so he wouldn't have to pay taxes anymore. And so among some entrepreneurs in Norway, he's a kind of a hero, but then when they're asked... And why don't you follow him? Well, yeah, but Norway's great. I mean, I don't want to live in Cyprus. I want to live here. There's so many advantages. I mean, just, just a low crime rate, for example, just not having to worry so much. It's, it's a low-stress environment. On the subject of low crime rate, let's just talk about immigration because Donald Trump notoriously said something about Sweden's 
problem with rape as a result of immigration. Do they have any problems that you can identify as a result of their openness to immigration? Definitely, definitely. And uh, I have a couple chapters toward the end of my book on things that they struggle with that uh, my country, for example, the U.S. also struggles with, but of course it's not my country alone. So they don't have that all figured out. Uh, they do have. They put tremendous investment into figuring it out, and they have the Nordic economic model supporting them in a way that we don't in in my country. But nevertheless, there is pushback, and part of that pushback is is racism. Uh, there's no doubt that there's racism in, among Scandinavians, and so each government has to decide. Uh, as it's upping its immigration portal, um, how much immigration can we have before the uh, right wing gains so much support among the voters that we're voted out, and then the economic elite can use the divisiveness of group against group in order to get itself back in, and we lose the achievement of the Nordic economy. So it's quite a complicated political calculus. The Swedes have gone the farthest, um, but Norwegians are not far behind. They've had one in five Norwegians is foreign-born, for example. So the old homogeneity of uh, the Nordic countries is, is not what it was. Um, and in Sweden, um, it, lately it's gone beyond, uh, uh, you know, higher than one in five that's, uh, that's foreign-born in, in Sweden. And the Swedish government is, is making a gamble. And uh, so far, it's winning, um, but it understands there's pushback. It understands that there's, uh, you know, there was a Nazi who is elected in a town council a few years ago and so on. So it's it's a very big worry. And uh, the large majority of those countries wants a strong, generous immigration policy. The large majority wants that. But they also realize that the minority grabs hold of that issue and tries to build itself based on that. You mentioned before that they'd abolished poverty, but I wonder whether the immigration is putting pressure on that idea as well. Those are the folks who are on the bottom of the ladder, no question about that. If those countries didn't have uh, strong poverty prevention programs, those uh, immigrants would be among the most poor. But they don't believe in poverty, so uh, not in an absolute sense, not in, not in the the definition of poverty, I go into that in the book, uh, the, the U.S. uses, I'm writing as an American, so I use the American definition of poverty, which is actual privation. That is, in the in this country, in my country, for example, there are people who need to choose between shall I buy my medicine or shall I buy food, you know, it comes to that, or shall I buy food or shall I pay the rent? And um, those kinds of questions don't come up in the Nordic countries, including they don't come up for immigrants. On the other hand, there's no doubt that immigrants coming in with a, a language disadvantage and maybe not much education in their own background are then um, are really then struggle uh, to qualify for jobs. And then the job of the country, having admitted them, is to make sure that they get the job training that they need to be able to get the kinds of jobs that are available in the Nordic countries. And, of course, free education helps enormously. You can imagine free university and so on. More and more Muslim young women, for example, are uh, are high achievers in, in Norwegian universities. It must make the Nordic countries very attractive to 
refugees and immigrants, particularly from the Middle East, on the other hand, make immigration very expensive for those countries. It does. It does. So that's also part of the uh, part of the calculation. Sweden took in more folks from Syria and other parts of the Middle East who were fleeing war last year. They took in more per capita than any other country in Europe. So, but they miscalculated at one point, and they were taking in so many people that there were immigrants uh, sleeping in the immigration offices, sleeping on desks, sleeping on the floor. They they just completely overwhelmed their own you know, their own access system. And so they had to close the gates for a while. They still are closed, and as soon as possible, they want to open the gates again. But it's uh, it's an epitaph because those are small countries, and, and yet the need is enormous. So they admire Angela Merkel for taking a lot of hits, you know, for, for having also been opening the gates of Germany. But it's um, tough. They want to be engaged in the global need, rather than to stand aloof and say, well, we have it very good. We're going to just uh, ignore the huge uh, human need. And then there's an economic dimension of this as well, because the demographics of Sweden, to Sweden is because it's the most outstanding example of the Nordics with regard to immigration, the uh, the demographics of Sweden are that they have an aging population. Well, who's going to be the young workers that are highly economically productive in order to make the welfare state work well for older people, um, they need the immigration for that, as as does Germany. So this isn't only idealism, although idealism is very important, but it's also uh, very pragmatic. It also means that over time they'll become less blonde and blue-eyed. Yes. Also, there's more of a crime rate among um, immigrants, of course, than there is among people uh, you know, native and so on. So they they definitely are open to problems and they are fierce problem solvers. And so for them, the idea, well, let's not have problems uh, would, would be an odd idea to have. They understand the human task as to take on problems and solve them rather than try to avoid them. <laughs> Having studied the, the Nordic countries so closely and discovered all this stuff that you're talking about, uh, you must be watching... American politics at the moment with a particular despair? Well, actually not, because the striking thing, I've been book touring now from Arizona to Maine to you know, California, Alaska, Florida, and what I've been telling people has people walking out of the bookstores and the meetings with a whole different body posture, because the amazing thing that can be learned from Sweden and Norway is that their period of greatest polarization, I mean, you're referring to the American polarization, which is huge and ugly right now, uh, but the greatest period of polarization for Norway and Sweden was the 20s and 30s, and that's exactly when they made their breakthrough, pushed their economic lead out of the way, and uh, created their Nordic model. So actually, they used that tremendous period of polarization when there were Nazis on the street, uh, you know, demonstrating, and there were communists on the streets, and the, the Nazis were trying to start fights and all that kind of thing. That was all going on at the very time when their majority was uh, getting ready to make its big move. And uh, so I spread that word around the U.S. Uh, in a very optimistic way. That is, I say, look, 
times of very big polarization can also be times of huge opportunity, and that was true actually in the U.S. in the 30s, and it's true for the U.S. in the 60s. And so instead of being afraid of polarization, what we might as well do is understand its opportunity and then roll up our sleeves and use the opportunity. But did uh, Sweden and Norway have a Trump as prime minister in the 20s and 30s? They had the ability to see through their pretend democracy that was offered by the parliament. That is, they understood that parliament was actually run by the economic elite. And yes, they had a parliament freely elected. You know, they had free elections. So it looked, on a very surface level, it looked democratic. Just as in the United States, it appears to be a democracy. Um, But on the other hand, if you look underneath and ask, well, who's actually rigging things, uh, then you find that what they found in Norway and Sweden uh, and Denmark and Ireland Iceland, were, um, it was the economic elite that was actually running things behind the scenes, and that's equally true in the U.S. And so once people wise up to the pretense of all that, then the interest shifts from a fascination with what's going on in Parliament this week, or Congress, or the White House, and the interest shifts to how do we build a strong enough movement so we can be the ones who are in the saddle, so we can have actual democracy rather than the pretend democracy that exists right now. Can you see actual evidence or signs of that happening in America? Oh, the movements are growing rapidly, yes. Mostly under the radar, but every once in a while it's apparent, for example, the Women's March that happened the day after the inauguration uh, was the largest public manifestation in the U.S. in history, uh, something like four or five million people. And uh, we we haven't seen that since 1969, during the height of the anti-Vietnam War movement, when it was more like two million people simultaneously demonstrating around the country. So, um, but I could I could name lots of indicators that uh, mobilization is happening on multiple fronts uh, right now, and uh, some of that mobilization could be flashed in the pan. Uh, and so there are also eager beaver um, organizers in all the places that I've been, including towns. Now, just the, this isn't just an urban, you know, phenomenon, but also towns where I've been, where people are rolling up their sleeves, and uh, whereas you know, an organization, a grassroots organization that was used to having 20 people at its meeting, having 200 people at its meeting. And uh, the co-op movement and the new economy movement in the U.S. is burgeoning, which was an, an important feature also for the Nordic countries because their cooperatives created a kind of infrastructure that gave people a lot of confidence that they could indeed take over the economy and run it better than the capitalists. So uh, I'm extremely hopeful about the U.S. I was, you know, I'm an ancient guy. I'm 79 years old, so I was very active in the civil rights movement in the 60s. And I haven't seen such a promising time since the 1960s for the United States, which in the 60s we made enormous breakthroughs, and we're going to do that again now. Perhaps you're talking about the human condition where you need to, in order to change, you need to hit rock bottom. That's right. Yeah, a lot of people don't wake up until until it looks like disaster is striking. That's what happened in Iceland, too. It was when their economy went bust and they couldn't even get money out of the ATM machines. That's when they woke up and uh, 3% of Icelanders took to the streets and forced their government out. 
and they jailed their bankers and they uh, you know brought in a left green movement that uh, government set their country back on the right path so i have a whole chapter on that because it was just a very very dramatic story of what can happen when the majority takes over their country <laughs> I was speaking with George Lakey, author of Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too. 